This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, you're listening to Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest today is Dr. Marcus Dryman, assistant professor at Mississippi State University and member of the Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant Consortium. Earlier this year, he joined us on the show to talk about the sharks of the Gulf Coast, but today we're going to focus on the red snapper and other reef fish found right here on our Gulf Coast. And as always, Dr. Major's here for your pet questions. You can join our conversation this morning with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 or email animals at And always a reminder that Creature Comforts airs twice each week, Thursday mornings at 9 and a repeat broadcast Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning to Libby and Dr. Major. Hope that you're doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I was not on the show last Thursday because I was en route to the Clarko State Park in Quitman, where a friend of mine and I stayed uh, the weekend. Uh, Had a really great time. Uh, The lake there is really beautiful. Uh, we went, uh, took advantage of the uh, swimming area several times during the weekend. Uh, there were people out there fishing. Uh, we saw some skiers, um, went on several hikes, uh, and the cabins there were really, really quite roomy and nice. So if anybody is looking for a staycation, I would recommend our state parks. They are, I think, one of the hidden treasures of Mississippi. Uh, not only have I stayed in that uh, there at Clarko, but my friend and I have also gone to several of the other state parks uh, to do some hiking. Uh, the, the nature trails are really great there. Uh, it, we were fortunate, though, I, every time we go in, uh, because sometimes they're they're not well marked, they're, you know, kind of, you know, where to go. So every time we go in and come out uh, uh, alive, I guess, <laughs> we consider that uh, to be a success. But uh, but like I said, I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, the cabins were quite roomy. The beds were comfortable. Uh, the, you know, they have a kitchen there. Uh, there was a screened back porch. Uh, so at least Clarko, uh, I can vouch for. Uh, you know, having some some great cabins. Now, Libby, I remember that you were uh, uh, over the state parks uh, for a time uh, during your career. Uh, w- what are your thoughts about our state parks? Oh, I I love our state. Every part of the state is lucky enough to have a really good park. Oh, I've got an echo of can. I'm assuming that I'm being heard. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the state parks are wonderful, and I would advise everybody, just like you did, to to seek out their state park for day use or for overnight accommodation. Right. On Saturday, it looked uh, at the swimming area, it looked like there were a number of folks that hit, were there for the day. And again, I mentioned that my friend and I have done that and also have done the uh, the cabins. The people there were very friendly, very helpful. So like I said, we had a, a very positive uh, um, experience uh, with uh, with Clarko State Park, which again is uh, south of uh, Meridian uh, near Quitman. So, uh, and again, you know, you're out there uh, in yep. the, enjoying the state park, but if you need to, a major city is nearby to uh, grab some extra supplies or something. So uh, it was a, a good time. Uh, and um, again, uh, really nice. We really do enjoy uh, hiking on the uh, nature trails in the state parks. Uh, Dr. Major, have you ever been to one of the state parks? A long time ago, yeah. I haven't been recently. Uh, I 
Roosevelt State Park was uh, always a, a good place to go. And uh, that's been probably 20, 25 years at least since I've been there. I need to go. Yeah, we uh, we went hiking at uh, Roosevelt State Park and one of the longer trails we've been on. And uh, sometimes if you're not an ex- – you know, we've been doing this for the summer, so we're not like – seasoned hikers but uh, it's not our first rodeo either but uh, on that one we were you know you get about halfway in there and you think are, are we ever going to come back out in, into civilization or whatever but uh, and as I said you know they're not it's not you know sidewalks and things and some parks do a little bit better job of of marking but I think most of the trails in also we've done on the Natchez Trace uh, they're marked well enough to where if you kind of know what sort of general direction you're heading in um, you'll you'll get back to to where you need to be, and plus, I think maybe that's part of the fun is uh, that it's not exactly a guided tour that you're on your own to kind of navigate through uh, the nature. But again, you know, just some wonderful uh, sights and uh, sounds uh, when you're on those nature trails. So, uh, Bob Crosby of Blue Cat Guide Service is a frequent guest on Creature Comforts. Uh, he is still guiding anglers that are looking for the next trophy fish, taking them out. Uh, I imagine on the Mississippi River. Also in the Clarion Ledger a few days ago, there was an article about families flocking to the coast for some fantastic trout fishing. So uh, any adventures on the water, Libby, Dr. Major? I, I've not made it to the coast for a while now. Uh, it's kind of hard for us to get down there and not spend a, a night, but we, we'll have to do it pretty soon. I've so, been having just my, most of my adventures are going on in my backyard. Sounds like fun, yeah. All right. Um, um, Libby, speaking of your, your backyard, uh, what are you seeing in your yard these days? Let's see. This week we've had, I think, three nests of Carolina wrens that have fledged. So we've had those little birds all over the place. And uh, if our listeners are not familiar with Carolina wren, that's a good bird for them to learn if they're new to birding. It's a, a they occur all over the state. A really loudmouth, tiny little bird. They're friendly to people and do well nesting close to people. So they're great. And you know, you sent me a picture to identify of a butterfly that was a red spotted purple. And so that got me out watching butterflies again. I've pulled out three butterfly books here on the desk and thought that's a good thing. We need to remind our listeners to um, start watching the butterflies, not just the birds, because that's always a fun thing to do. And red-spotted purple is a good butterfly to learn also because it's um, pretty common. Any wooded area is likely to have them. Uh, they like black cherry trees and willow trees, which are all over the state. So uh, that's a, a good thing to start noticing in your yard. There are a lot of swallowtails out right now, too. And I've, I haven't seen my guff fritillaries out, but I'm sure in the south po- southern part of the state, people are probably seeing them. I always associate them, associate them with kind of late in the summer. Yeah, my friend uh, lives in Florence and has a little bit of a wooded area out behind his house. And uh, yesterday, the butterfly kind of landed on his hand, and uh, he said stayed with him for, for several minutes. So he was quite uh, impressed with that. It, it, I don't think I've ever heard of that happening, but he was uh, he enjoyed that. And um, and so Libby helped us identify exactly what uh, what butterfly it was. 
Dr. Major, we have a, a pet question here for you via email, and it says, I have a kitten who's maybe three months old. Her third eye doesn't seem to be working properly. We've given her two rounds of wormer when we first got her at six weeks. She was just put on antibiotics because our vet thinks she has an upper respiratory infection, and that's why her eyes look like this. Well, it's been five days after steroid shot and still on antibiotics, and her eyes still have the third covering. It's not all the time, and sometimes it's just one eye or the other. Is there something else that we should do? She's eating, drinking, and playing. Nothing seems to be wrong. Uh, Dr. Major, before you jump into that, the third eye, I guess, is that other sort of... Well, tell us what the third eye of a cat is. Okay. That is... uh, The long name for that is nicotinating membrane, uh, but it is the inner eyelid. Uh, Sometimes when a cat's feeling bad, uh, it will actually cover up maybe a third to a half of the eye. Uh, there are varying reasons for that, intestinal parasites, uh, infection, uh, and that would be something for a veterinarian to discuss with them and try to figure out. A lot of times that will go away uh, with some time. It does occur a lot of times with uh, respiratory-type infections as well. Uh, but when a vet uh, prescribes something like the, the steroid shot and the antibiotics and there's not uh, any kind of change in about a week or so, probably would be a good time to just go back and say, hey, you know, what we tried didn't work. Can we go uh, uh, with another uh, th- thought? Exactly. And, you know, probably, and I say probably, probably some ophthalmic uh, ointment uh, would be a good thing as well. I don't know if they'd use that or not. But I think it would be good. All right. Uh, before our first break, here is another cat email. Uh, this one says, we have a female cat, almost three, spayed, had one litter uh, before we could catch her and get her to the vet. About a year ago, we noticed her spraying to mark her territory, just as a tomcat would. Her ability to spray has diminished over the past months, uh, but to the point that we recently noticed her trying to spray but being unable. Concurrently, she began to display signs of being unable to empty her bladder, producing a drop or two at times and sometimes nothing. We took her to the vet. No problems found, though the re- vet remarked that her urine was concentrated. The vet administered an antibiotic in, antibiotic in case of infection. Over the past 10 days, she has, for the most part, behaved normally, active and energetic, eating well, and appearing happy and healthy. Any thoughts on what's going on with our cat named Itsy? Itsy, how about that? It's a good name. Uh Probably uh, this will decline and get she'll get back to normal. It is unusual for a female cat to spray, uh, mark your territory, if you will. Uh, but in most cases, it's self-limiting. So hopefully that will be uh, something that goes away. Sounds like it probably has started to go away. But it's not totally unusual. It's, it's rare, but uh, it does happen. All righty. Time for our first break of the hour. When we get back, we will visit with our guest, Dr. Marcus Dryman. He's on the coast, and maybe he's done some trout fishing lately, but we're going to talk red snapper and other reef, reef fish. So stay tuned. Call with your questions and comments this morning. We've got some open phone lines. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's one 672 7464, or you can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. 
I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11, or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Our guest for the day is Marcus Dryman, assistant professor at Mississippi State University and member of the Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant Consortium. You can join our conversation this morning with a question or comment. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Send an email to animals at so, Marcus, we appreciate you joining us again. If you would remind us of uh, the work that you do with the Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant Consortium. Sure thing, Kevin. Um, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And so I am a marine fisheries specialist with the Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant Consortium. And what that means is that a big part of my job is identifying issues that are important, pressing, critical, timely to both recreational and commercial fishermen across the states of Mississippi and Alabama, and then either designing research projects to help address those issues or simply finding the research that's already been done to address those issues and making sure those stakeholders have access to that information. So in that respect, you can think of me as sort of a a conduit uh, between the scientific uh, community and stakeholders, either recreational or commercial. Uh, we're going to be talking about reef fish today and other saltwater creatures. Uh, we're going to start off, though, if you could tell us about the great red snapper count. Ah, uh, yeah, fantastic. So the great red snapper count is this massive effort to estimate the absolute abundance of red snapper in the northern Gulf of Mexico. And by northern Gulf of Mexico, I just mean uh, the United States Gulf of Mexico. And If you can imagine, that's no small task, right? Because we're trying to count fish, you know, that number in the millions and that, you know, inherently don't want to be counted. Uh, Counting fish underwater, especially when the fish move and especially when the water is not clear, um, at times seems like an impossible task. Yet that's what the essence of the Great Red Snapper count is. So how do you go about doing that? Yeah, well, uh, the short answer is it's complicated. And... (laughs) The techniques vary depending on what habitats we're trying to estimate abundance in. So, for example, in very clear and shallow waters off the coast of Florida, for example, you can use a device called a remotely operated vehicle, which is just an underwater camera uh, that lets you literally take video and photos of fish. And then back in the laboratory, you can analyze that video and simply do counts of the numbers of fish. Now, in areas like uh, Texas, where the water isn't so clear, or of course in Mississippi and Alabama. Um, It's much more difficult and we have to rely on um, different techniques like depletions and also just regular old tag and recapture studies. So using a suite of different methods, we ultimately combined the numbers from all of those different approaches to get one sort of grand finale type number. And so then what would the sort of the goal of this project be? Well, that's a great question because, of course, um, NOAA Fisheries or the National Marine Fisheries Service is in charge of 
providing a stock assessment and managing Red Snapper in the federal waters of the United States. And, and they do a great job with this. And they use similarly complicated and robust techniques for their stock assessment. But essentially what happened is what NOAA Fisheries was finding in terms of the health of the stock and the status of the stock was at odds with what anglers on the water were seeing. So in other words, anglers perceived a very, very healthy stock, whereas the stock assessment was a little bit more pessimistic. So therein was the impetus for the Great Red Snapper Count, essentially, hey, let's get together an independent team, so separate from the normal organization that manages and assesses the stock of Red Snapper, and let's see if we put a lot of time and resources into this one singular goal, let's see what this independent assessment can come up with. Um, and I guess that's important because uh, based on the population and the health of the population, that would set uh, things like, um, you know, maybe um, restrictions on how many of the fish can be caught and that sort of thing. Absolutely. So federal fisheries and state fisheries, for that matter, are managed through a series of regulations, including season lengths, size limits, um, bag limits, trip limits, quotas, you know, a, a variety of different measures and metrics like that. But all of those are based on the health of the stock. So a stock that is very healthy and not experiencing overfishing and not um, being overfished can have much more liberal regulations, whereas a stock that's experiencing severe harvest pressure has to be managed with a more conservative approach. All right, so how far along in the count are you, uh, and when do you think that you'll have some uh, results that you can work with? Well, great question, right? So it's been a process. We started at the end of 2017, and we are just now wrapping up. So it's essentially uh, near a three-year pro process, but we were within a month or two of having the final results. Um, and I can't tell you how exciting that is for someone like me who's been thinking a lot about Red Snapper over the past three years. So I know myself and the other um, scientists on the project are happy to wrap this up soon and present those findings to the general public. But I guess this is something that uh, over time might need to be sort of repeated so that you can continue or are there some ways, the, some methods being developed so that you can kind of continue to monitor the, the health of the stock? Yeah, what a great question. So one of the nice outcomes of the Great Red Snapper Count is that we have, in fact, developed new techniques that allow uh, for constant updating and monitoring of the stock. Because just like you said, we expect the status of the stock to change and not just as a result of fishing pressure, but as a result of environmental stochasticity, we call it. In other words, we know that the environment is constantly changing. Waters may warm or cool and currents may change and the availability of prey, uh, preferred prey for things like red snapper may change. So naturally we expect populations of red snapper to fluctuate and so Developing some of these new techniques will allow us to better and more quickly assess the status of that population in the future. Um, is the red snapper a popular uh, fish to be fished maybe by both uh, uh, recreational and, and commercial fishermen? Yeah, in fact, I'd say that's an understatement. You know, many folks consider Gulf of Mexico red snapper to be one of the most important fish in their fishing repertoire, and that's both recreational and commercial. So. Red snapper is a large commercial fishery in terms of its importance, but really, if you consider all the millions of recreational anglers across the Gulf of Mexico, 
Um, some of our survey data suggests that red snapper is the absolute most important fish for them. It's a big fish. Um, it's a beautiful fish. And of course, as we all know, it's a very tasty fish. <laughs> Uh, we're going to be visiting with our guest, Marcus Dryman, assistant professor at Mississippi State University and member of the Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant Consortium throughout the hour. <laughs> so if you have a question or if you have a pet question for Dr. Major or a brush with nature you'd like to share, you can call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring We actually do have a caller on the line. Uh, Carolyn's calling in from Ocean Springs. Good morning. You're on the air with us, so go ahead. Good morning. I have a question. Maybe you can help me identify a bird I saw in my yard. Okay, go ahead. There was a large bird sitting on the edge of my bird feeder, which is under a holly tree and a mulberry tree, which is real thick over it. And it was a type of hawk that I can't identify from a book. It had very strong brown stripes all the way down its chest from top to bottom. I was looking at it head on. It was looking around a bit, and I was um, just sitting there on the edge of the bird feeder, and the feathers on the legs feet that I could see seemed to be white and it sat there a long time. I, I just saw it head on and then it flew. It was very agile. It flew up through the branches and away um, about a foot tall, maybe larger than a blue jay. Um, it was just very interesting. Libby, any thoughts? Um, I Cooper's hawk. I can't hear you. I uh, could not hear every. I, I couldn't hear everything that she was saying. I'm. I've got a bad connection today. But a Cooper's hawk and a sharp shins hawk both hang around your bird feeders, and uh, I would look at those two in the book and see if either one of those meets your description. It had just very strong brown stripes all the way down its chest from top to bottom, and I don't see that in the bird book. Right. Any thoughts, Dr. Major? Yes. You know, the shark fin hawk is amazing, and that's one thing that she said, you know, it flies through the limbs, the branches, uh, and a lot of times they are at the bird feeder because there are birds there, and they feed on birds, but also they love squirrels, and they can actually go through the trees and pick a squirrel off a limb pretty readily. So, as Libby said, probably a sharp-shin hawk or a cooper's, but I would put my money on sharp-shin. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And, uh, Carolyn, if you uh, happen to see it again and, and have a smartphone ready, if you'd snap a picture of it and send it to animals at mpbonline.org, We'll see if we can't help you figure out exactly what that was, but uh, we appreciate uh, your call this morning. Um, so we're visiting with uh, Marcus Dryman, assistant professor at Mississippi State University, member of the Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant Consortium. It's time for another break. If you've had a brush with nature that you want to talk about, if you have a pet question for Dr. Major or a question for our guest, give us a call because we've got some open phone lines. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can also send us an email. It's animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. 
Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Our guest is Dr. Marcus Dryman, member of the Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant Consortium and assistant extension professor at Mississippi State University. You can join our conversation this morning with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 or email animals at mpbonline.org. We'll uh, continue our discussion with Marcus in just a minute, but we do have a couple of phone calls to get to, so let's start with uh, Rebecca, who's called in from Gulfport. Good morning, Rebecca. Go ahead, please. Good morning. Libby, dear, I am so enjoying the bells, the uh, wind chimes you suggested that I put up to try and discourage my suicidal cardinal, and it lasted for four days, and he's still at it. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. Um, Have you put reflective things like the pie plates and all that kind of stuff. We, that we seemed to work for me tape. this last time I did it. We put a prism tape along the window. That didn't phase him. I took the pinwheels and I hung those from the trees and that didn't phase him. He's, he's just crazy. Hmm. Oh, I'm so sorry. It can be very irritating and it's sad to watch, isn't it? Because you feel like he's ruining his life. Get it nothing is, else done. Only one. <laughs> I have never seen another bird attack the windows. Just and my husband named him Thumper. <laughs> um, oh, I'm so sorry. Rebecca, I'm not sure if we, ha- we would have any any advice for you. Other, my only thought would be maybe to keep doing the things that you're trying to do and just you know frequently rotate them around so he doesn't get used to them. But that uh, does seem uh, very strange, and uh, maybe. Libby, if you could, uh, you know, talk to some of your contacts and see if, if anybody's ever heard of a, a a crazy bird like this that just continues to, to bang against a window, and maybe we can uh, report back on, on a future show. Yeah, it's not an uncommon thing, so I have talked to people about it, and it's a frustrating thing for me, too, because I had one once that did it for weeks and weeks and weeks, and I think finally just died, but... This year, I had a, a bird that did it just solid for a couple of weeks, and I honestly don't know if something happened to that bird or if he changed his behavior. I think sometimes when they get so obsessive about that behavior, unfortunately, that's kind of the end of them. So it's, it's, it is a common thing, I say, because... I, we certainly hear that complaint. I don't think it happens in everybody's yard, but it's not an uncommon thing. And cardinals are such attentive. They're they're kind of a type A personality bird anyway, and I think maybe they're more prone to this kind of obsessive behavior. Then both the males and female cardinals will do it. All right, uh, Rebecca, thanks for the update. And as I said, if we find out any kind of information or something advice to give you, we will update on a future show. But uh, good luck with your uh, continuing battle with uh, Thumper there. Uh, next, we've got another caller on the line. It's John in Mobile. Good morning, John. Go ahead, please. Yes, sir. I hope everybody's had that coffee this morning. <laughs> uh, a quick question for you concerning quotas. Do they apply both to 
commercial and recreational fishing, or is it just recreational? And the second part of the question is, what percent of the catch is is allocated to um, commercial versus um, uh, what am I thinking? Uh, recreational fishing. You know, how, what is the break there? 50, 50, 40, 30, 47, whatever. Uh, Marcus, any thoughts on that? Absolutely, John. Those are great questions. So, first of all, quotas, when we think about quotas, those are typically um, metrics that apply to commercial fisheries. So, commercial fishermen tend to have their landings managed through quotas, whereas recreational fishermen, it's more of a bag limit or a trip limit. In other words, you know, one fish or two fish per person per day, or sometimes it's per vessel, something along those lines. With respect to the breakdown, that's also a really good te- uh, question, and it's a uh, it's a question that's pretty contentious. So those percentages get allocated by the councils, the Gulf of Mexico Fishery Management Council, in our um, in our instance, and usually they tend to be fairly equitable. So roughly about half of the total um, quota allocated to commercial, and about half to recreational and or head boat or charter fishermen. So it, it tends to be about 50-50, but um, it is broken down very specifically. I just don't know exactly off the top of my head what those percentages are. All right, uh, John, thanks for calling in this morning. Let's uh, move on and get one more phone call in, and it's uh, our friend Bill who's calling from Greenwood. Good morning, Bill. You're on the air. Go ahead. Hi, y'all doing? Can you hear me, I hope? Yep, go ahead. Okay. Uh, about the bird, uh, it wasn't, uh, to me, it wasn't a, a cardinal. It was a moth bird, and what he would do, he would get on my car, uh, uh, on my uh, mirror on my car, you know, the rear view mirror and the, and, and the front mirror, mm-hmm. and look at himself and, and uh, constantly look and sing to himself in, in his reflection and get on the ground, and he would do his court and dance. And I guess because the Boston birds look alike, you know, he, he was probably in love with the uh, reflection in the mirror. And uh, it was really comical what he used to do. But he never did try to crash into it. But uh, it was kind of funny. Yeah, that sounds really kind of crazy. That's uh, so uh we enjoy looking at birds, but uh, sometimes we can't seem to quite understand uh, their behavior. And I think, as Libby pointed out, it, it, it seems to be sort of an obsession, and then they, they just can't help themselves. Although, you know, uh, if he's looking at himself in the mirror and that sort of thing, maybe that's why he, he had so much fun with that. Our guest today is uh, Dr. Marcus Dryman. Uh, he's a member of the Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant Consortium. We're talking about reefs and reef fish this morning. So, uh, Marcus, uh, you can think of coral reefs in the Caribbean. There's the Great Barrier Reef, I think, in Australia. What about the, the Gulf of Mexico? Tell us about the reefs that are in the Gulf. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, so uh, another good question. And it's interesting. Like you said, the typical image that comes to mind when we think of a a reef is exactly that, a coral reef, um, much like we have on the Great Barrier Reef off the northeast coast of Australia. But the reefs in the in the Gulf of Mexico are different. Now, around kind of the west coast, southwest coast of Florida, we do tend to see coral reefs. That's within sort of the latitude where corals can grow healthy. Um, but in our neck of the woods, specifically Mississippi and Alabama, the majority of our reefs are artificial reefs. In other words, structures that are deployed specifically to congregate fish, to attract fish, 
and to allow for discrete recreational fishing opportunities. So off the coast of Alabama, that might look like a reef pyramid um, or various types of structures like that off the coast of Mississippi. Now, moving west to areas like Louisiana and Texas, a lot of their reefs are, um, artific are artificial reefs, but that are reef um, oil platforms. So through programs like Rigs to Reefs, they can take decommissioned oil and gas platforms, chop them off, purposefully lay them on the seafloor, and then those act to attract and congregate different types of reef fishes. Um, my brother lives in Pensacola, and I think I remember hearing once that in Florida, there was maybe a sunken vessel that also can act as an artificial reef. You know, that's a great point. I for totally forgot about that. So sunken vessels, um, tanks, Sherman tanks and things like that are really classic examples of artificial reefs, specifically in areas like Pensacola. And they provide great diving opportunities, but they also provide great fishing opportunities. So what is it about a reef uh, that these fish uh, are attracted to? Structure. They simply put, they like having a place to call home. So that's why we manage these fishes in a group called reef fishes. It's because collectively they are structure associated fishes. We think about something like a whale shark, for example, that's very wide ranging. It's a pelagic fish that you know traverses long distances across the ocean. But then we think about things like snappers and groupers, and they tend to be tightly associated with structures. And again, those are natural reefs in areas off South Florida, things like sunken ships and tanks in areas off West Florida, and then, you know, artificial reef pyramids in our neck of the woods. So as we add more of these reefs to the Gulf, does it increase the total amount of reef fishes producing more fish, or does it attract uh, maybe existing fish from other areas or possibly both? Oh, wow. That's kind of, uh, kind of the question du jour, if you will. That's been a very um, hot topic of debate among fisheries scientists for years. In other words, do these reefs simply act to attract fish from other areas, you know, um, as sort of a, a light bulb type effect with a moth? Or are they actually producing additional biomass and creating more fish? And, you know, some people would argue that the jury is still out. Me personally, um, I have, I'm of the opinion that given the latest science um, and the latest literature and the latest studies on these types of questions, that these reefs actually act to produce more fish rather than simply attracting fish from other um, nearby areas. But, you know, somebody uh, equally um, knowledgeable might give you a completely different opinion. You know, sort of the, the amateur point of view, I would think that maybe, you know, if, if you improve a habitat, that that might increase the population. But again, that's, uh, I'm not a scientist. I just play one on the radio sometimes. <laughs> no, I mean, not an amateur viewpoint at all. In fact, that's exactly uh, what we're arguing is that if you increase the quality of the resource, the limiting resource, and if in fact that limiting resource is habitat, well, then that's going to lead to increased productivity. So we can imagine these artificial reef structures. We can actually see them being deployed and then go back immediately and start measuring changes in the community. So the small community of benthic and sessile invertebrates and the encrusting invertebrates all over these structures, it makes sense that that inherently is going to lead to more secondary productivity. In other words, the animals that feed on those small little invertebrates which will in turn create more opportunities for things like red snapper and, and groupers. And so really, 
Um, it's a very intuitive idea, just like you said. Uh, now, actually definitively measuring that can be a challenge, but I would say, you know, that there is strong evidence that increases in habitat quality and quantity lead to increases in productivity for things like reef fishes. We're visiting today with Dr. Marcus Dryman, member of the Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant Consortium, currently talking about reef fish in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, Marcus, are there any reef fish that are somewhat specific just to Mississippi, or do we share uh, the same fish uh, found all along the coast? Yeah, that, that's a great question. You know, the kind of quintessential reef fish in Mississippi is red snapper. And I would go so far as to say the same thing in Alabama. So in these two areas, when you go to an artificial reef and you look at the reef fish community, it is dominated by red snapper. So maybe, you know, between eight and nine out of 10 fish that you see are going to be red snapper. And this is a great thing. Um, but there are certainly other reef fishes that don't get quite as much attention. You know, the, the um, federally managed Gulf of Mexico reef fish include 31 different species. So other reef fishes that we see along the Mississippi and Alabama coast include things like great triggerfish, um, really interesting, uh, really delicious fish, and things like greater amberjack. Uh, but, you know, you move towards areas like Florida and their reef fish community is a little more diverse. They have more groupers um, and more of different types of snappers than we do. And of course, we certainly have snappers like vermilion snapper and things like that. But again, I guess the quintessential reef fish in our part of the world is red snapper. And so uh, do these reef fish tend to stay in the same reef their whole lives or do they tend to travel around some? You know, that's a really good question and something we've only really gotten a handle on in the past 10 to 20 years. So the answer is, uh, is complicated. So, you know, they recruit to a reef at a fairly early age. And what that means is that they first show up and associate with a, a reef, let's say at, you know, age zero to one. And then they stay pretty, if, if we're just talking about red snapper, they stay pretty closely associated with that reef um, up until ages four, five, six. And we can tell that from very detailed tagging studies, particularly electronic tags that allow us to in near real time monitor the position of these fish. So they'll stay pretty closely associated to a particular reef. But then once these fish get older than about, say, 10 years old, they no longer rely so closely or so intimately on that reef structure. So this allows them to roam away from the reef, perhaps enjoying other foraging opportunities uh, that aren't so closely associated with the reef. So basically, they're tightly associated with the reef at uh, young and teenage years. By the time these fish are old men or ladies, uh, they're wandering far away from the reef for, for fairly substantial periods of time. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, and it's time for the final break this hour. When we get back, we'll continue talking with Dr. Marcus Dryman. We've been talking about reef fishing, red snapper management, and other saltwater fish. Also, William's on the line with another suggestion for uh, that crazy cardinal we've been talking about. And Dr. Major's here, always ready for pet questions. Join our conversation with your phone call. The number's 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more, so stay tuned. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts 
bringing you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. We're back on Creature Comforts. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest today is Marcus Dryman, assistant professor at Mississippi State University and a member of the Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant Consortium. Still time to join our conversation with a question or comment. The number's 1-877-MPB-RING. It's one 672 You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. If you missed any of the show today, you can always subscribe to the podcast using any podcasting app, or you can download the MPB public media app for your smartphone. So earlier in the show, we uh, had a call from uh, one of our listeners who has been dealing with a cardinal that will not stop banging into the windows of her house. William from Starkville, do you have some ideas for us? Yes, but uh, let me first... uh wish a happy anniversary to uh, MPB. I just wish I could be here for the next 50 years <laughs> uh, <laughs> to enjoy it some more. Uh, I, I hope that she, uh, uh, that she doesn't have a cardinal that's so smart that he moves from window to window. I find it hard to believe she couldn't hang a screen up uh, to keep him away. But I wanted to tell you about uh, an episode that I tried, and I was... If, if she's really frustrated and uh, and exasperated, this may not help. But years ago, I just for fun, I found a, a dead owl by the road, and I, and I took it and I tried a little taxidermy and still stuffed it up and made some bright yellow eyes. I just carved them by hand and painted the bright yellow. And I stuck that up under on my second floor uh, balcony uh, in the apartment I was in, and uh, and uh, pretty soon, every blue jay in the in the block was was there raising a fuss over this owl. And then I got a flyer from Time Magazine uh, on birds. And the uh, when you opened it out, there was half an owl that was life size, just half an owl. And I stuck it up, and the same thing happened. Boy, there were blue jays like crazy there. And I just was thinking uh, she might be able to go to the library and find a book on birds, find a big picture of an owl, color print it, and uh, try that as a uh, as a. Uh, uh, and it it would be fun unless she's exasperated and really annoyed and frustrated by the incident. So, otherwise, I find it. All right, William. The, the uh, cardinals that came to my window always came to the same spot. Uh, well, the same window each year. There, there were two windows that they liked. And uh, so uh, so just putting a, a screen over it, a, a sheet over it for a week or a month uh, served to, to, to drive them away. Anyway, I hope that this uh, might be fun or interesting to... Uh, to others, if not to her. All right. Thanks for the call, William, and the well wishes on our anniversary. This is the 50th anniversary of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. We've been celebrating with various uh, uh, programs and things, uh, both on uh, television and radio throughout the year. So we appreciate your well wishes. Uh, We've got another caller on the line. It's Darlene from Mobile with a question for Dr. Major. Go ahead, Darlene. You're on the air with us. 
Uh, yes. I have a uh, Boston Terrier. He's 34 pounds, and he eats, uh, normally he eats Purina, but I thought I'd try something different because of this. He doesn't, he just snubs his nose at the food. Now, I put dry food there, and I usually use Purina, but I'm using blue just to try to find out what he will eat, and then a little canned dog food with it just to make it moist. Now, tell me what to do to get him to eat anything like that. Are you trying to get him to lose weight? No. Okay. No. He's a a husky little muscle thing. Most of the dogs will go for, you know, adds canned food to the dry food and, and as well. Uh, he may be pretty picky. Uh, yeah. Food you've got is uh, good food. Nothing wrong with that. He just doesn't want it. Hey, and you can be, depends on how uh, hard you want to be, you can take it up if he doesn't need it and put some back out, small amounts, and uh uh-huh message and we'll start eating that because yeah he's going to be hungry and i think yeah a good thing so don't put a lot of food out at a time Mm -hmm. and food with the dry and if he doesn't need it take it up he's not going to starve he's not going to starve he will eat sometime or other my husband says i uh (laughs) spoiling by giving him a little this and a little that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, we all we all we all do that. Okay, yeah. I mean, that's part of part of the joy that they give us, and we take yeah. good care of them. I'm sure you are. All right. And now, next question. My husband has a shock collar on him. He doesn't use it bad. I I swear. I I told him I'd tie him up in it and zap him if he hits him hard, because okay. he comes just to a regular uh, pager, like on there. Right. So that's not. I don't like it at all, but, you know, we seem to have to have it if we go out on the front porch and he's out in the middle of the street and doesn't pay attention to the traffic. That's a very, uh, some people would object to that, but it's keeping him out of the street. Yeah. And on on the low setting, I think Uh it's, I would think that it's okay. Okay. All right. All right. Those are my two questions for today. Thank you very much and happy anniversary over there. All righty. Thanks, Darlene, for your call. This is Preacher. Creature, go ahead, Dr. Major. I said you could always put it on your husband if you had to. (laughs) (laughs) Get in trouble. We are visiting today on uh, Creature Comforts with Dr. Marcus Dryman. Marcus, we've been talking about uh, the reef fish, and you mentioned that they're popular uh, among uh, amateur anglers. Um, if someone's never been reef fishing before, is there special uh, equipment that they need? Any tips that you might give about reef fishing? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So um, anybody trying to catch a reef fish uh, should follow some basic sort of um, best practices. Um, for angling, specifically catch and release angling, because you never know if you're going to catch a fish that you're unable to keep because it's out of season or too small or something to that effect. So certainly I would use uh, a type of hook called a circle hook. Um, It requires less expertise um, and it drastically reduces the incidence of gut hooking. In other words, where the fish is not hooked in the mouth, but rather hooked in the stomach, which is lethal um, and prevents you from being able to release the fish. So I would definitely use J-hooks. 
Um, I would definitely, if you're releasing the fish, keep it out of the water for as little time as possible. And if you have the opportunity to use something called a descending device for a fish that's experiencing barotrauma, uh, that's very helpful. So barotrauma is simply um, a condition where fish brought rapidly from depth experience um, traumas like uh, bulging eyes or a stomach protruding from the mouth or very commonly a swim bladder that's overinflated. So a descender device is simply a quick way to take a fish like that back down to depth and allow it to naturally recompress. And that way, if you are releasing a fish, it dramatically increases the chance that that fish can safely return to its population. All right. Very good. That's good. about going to wrap this up. Always a reminder that if you need to get in touch with us when we're not on the air, you can send us an email. It's animals at mpbonline.org. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by listeners like you. If you need to hear today's show or previous show again, you can go to mpbonline.org slash creature comforts. Our show is produced each week by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Liz Gill. So for Libby Hartfield, Dr. Troy Major, and our guest Marcus Dryman, I'm Kevin Farrell. Up next at 10, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.